Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I do my level best to answer the questions you send me uh, when you send them to me by uh, email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. So um, thank you very much for inviting me into your home this week. I am very happy to uh, give you the best that I know how to give you on this. And uh, we got some great questions. I just wanted to put a quick plug in for the podcast that I put up yesterday. It was another uh, in um, what will probably be a series of podcasts uh, with Stephen Tiger, uh, who is an author and someone who kind of pushes back pretty hard against um, some forms of Christian apologetics. And we have been uh, diving into some of that. And I've been having a lot of fun learning about how it is that people go about rationalizing or thinking through the reasoning for their faith. And uh, especially Christian faith, because that's the those are some of the apologetic arguments that we've been looking into and taking apart. And um, anyway, it's been kind of fun. And if you're interested in that sort of thing, then and I certainly am, then uh, I hope you'll check it out. I find this stuff, by the way, fascinating because to me, it parallels very much along the line of how people get into and get stuck in belief systems uh, like cults. And of course, not all belief is, you know, cultic belief, but it starts somewhere and it goes. <laughs> and so I always find it interesting to sort of look at where things start and where they go. All right. So that all being said, we got some great questions this week. So let's go ahead and get to it. Oscar Q. Zilch. I'm still confused as to what tone 40 is supposed to be in Scientology. Is it a state of pure serenity or is it the tone an angry wizard might make in order to break up a traffic jam? Okay, thank you for this. So tone 40 is a term uh, that is used in Scientology, and it's an interesting thing because it is more along the lines of that serenity of um, that pure serenity you, you mentioned in your question. Um, it's a place which is supposed to be the highest emotional state or, or, or state of existence that a spiritual entity can exhibit or, or be in, uh, at least here in the physical universe in, this, in, this, in all of this. But Hubbard didn't even limit it to that. He just said tone 40 is the top of the scale. And this came out of um, the work on the tone scale. And that's a video I also need to do. Um, which is hanging fire on some things, and that'll, that'll get done again after my uni studies. I'll be tackling that tone scale and the E-meter. And um, But the tone scale came out of, uh, well, the, the true story is that it came out of Hubbard's drunken <laughs> apathy uh, in Palm Springs, California in 1950-51. But the scale is supposed to be a, a numeric scale of of our emotional states from body death, which is no emotion at the, at the bottom of the scale where you're not really exhibiting any emotion anymore, up through apathy and grief and fear and um, anger and boredom. And, the, and Hubbard put these into a sequence or an order. And he said that this sequence came out of how pre-clears were observed to go through emotional states as they went through engrams, as they ran out their um, their past traumas with Dianetics. I mean, it's all poppycock, but that's what he said. And so at the top of this scale, what eventually happened is that Hubbard said that for human beings, you go up to, to, to four on the scale. So the, so the scale goes zero, the body death, to four, which is like enthusiasm. And that's the highest emotional state that a body, a human body, can exhibit, even though there are higher states of being that a thetan can uh, be in or experience. Um, the, uh, gosh, I'm trying to think right now of what some of those uh, higher states are. Games, action, were the names given to some of these higher states of being where you were you know, in games, you're like, woohoo, everything's a game and it's all fun and we're just playing. And uh, and you kind of are in this really high level of excitement and adventure and, and enthusiasm. But as a Thetan, as a spiritual entity, you're actually higher than what your body can exhibit or show. And I know this sounds a bit weird, and it is, 
But um, he also said that there were emotional states below body death where a Thetan would be really bad off in terms of his state of being, his, his awareness and ability and, and how he would think about the world or interact with it. So you can have these lower emotional states um, and then you can have these higher ones. And tone 40 or 40.0 on the, on the tone scale, this he called emotions tones, like musical, you know, harmonic tones. And um, the highest one is 40.0. That's as high as the scale goes. And uh, that is called serenity of beingness. And it's supposed to be a place where Hubbard describes it in a few places where he talks about how it is a state of total uncaring as far as anything goes. He said it's really not an ideal place for a Thetan to be if your ideal, you know, if your idea of life and living is, is, is mocking up or creating or pursuing goals and, and you know, and, and, and the excitement and adventure of, of carrying out, you know, the actions you need to take in order to accomplish those goals. This is kind of Hubbard's idea of what, you know, a good life consists of. And this is action. This is 20.0. This is like, you know, you really, you're going and you're getting and nothing's getting in your way and you're just, you know, you're just uh, making it all happen. But, but tone 40 is actually way above that. And that's the place where you don't have to have games anymore. You don't have to be playing these, these, these silly physical universe games anymore. You just don't even really care. It's a place where you're simply in a sort of uh, a happiness and joy. But it's not just these words. It's so much more than that. It's supposed to encompass this, this, this native sort of state where a Thetan is simply existing and is completely serene and calm and chill about every part of that existence. And the idea of even existing through matter, energy, space, and time, or through bodies, or through the messed universe, you know, as they say in Scientology, matter, energy, space, time, um, it doesn't even matter. It's not even important to you. It does. It, it, that's like, ugh, you know, why would I? Uh, you know, you just you're just out there, and nothing's touching you. This is not a place where people go very often. And and if and and Hubbard describes it as a, again, a not a, not necessarily even an ideal state of being, um, but it's the highest level you could possibly conceive of. And this is this is tone forty or forty point so tone 40 is also used as an expression in Scientology to, to mean um, pure intention without reservation. There's just no considerations, no reservations, no idea at all that anything is going to get in your way. And the idea in Scientology, and this is really, really just the, one of the most fundamental ideas of Scientology is that if you, as a spiritual entity, were to want or desire or put out an idea or an intention for something to happen, it would just happen, just like that. And the only thing that's getting in your way is your own considerations, your own ideas, your own negativity, your own certainties that it won't work, your self-doubts, right? Your self-reservations. That's what actually stops you from creating anything you want in your life right here and now. You know, you don't have to even go to the top of the OT levels in order to accomplish this. You as a Thetan right now have all the ability you've ever had. The only thing getting in your way is you. And the reason you're getting in your own way is because of all of these agreements that you have uh, agreed to, all these considerations and ideas that you've agreed to, sort of double binds, if you remember me talking about double binds all the time, um, that you've created for yourself in order to be in the physical universe, in order to have a body, in order to operate it, you have to forget all kinds of stuff about who you really are. And who you really are is this native 
or is this is this spiritual entity, the spiritual being, who has an infinite ability to create anything, anytime, anywhere, or conversely, destroy anything, anywhere, anytime, right? You don't want that computer there, boom, it's gone, right? You don't want, you know, something around, boom, it's gone. That's, that's what you should be able to do. And in your native state, you could do that. And that is really tone 40. That is it, creation or, or intention or postulate, as L. Ron Hubbard says, without any reservation whatsoever. You just simply know that's what's going to happen. Whether it's an event, whether it's a creation, whether it's, you know, whatever. Yeah, I think you guys get the idea. So... This is um, also called Tone 40. And in Scientology, when you see people in, in you know, Scientologists really getting, you know, and they're going to they're gonna make something happen. They become, they try to go Tone 40, right? I'm going to get all this intention and I'm going to ram it out and it's going to happen, you know. And um, anyway, and so this is the idea. And so clearly, if you accept that this is true, it's not, but if you accept it is, then if you don't pull off anything, I mean, we got this run on us as Sea Org members all the time, right? If something doesn't come off or something doesn't, it isn't made to go right, then, you know, you clearly weren't intending for it to. You, your tone 40 sucked. Your intention sucked. And so, um, you know, it's, it's go, go, you know, your, your Thetan needs to go do his homework and, and figure out how to how to beget tone 40 and how to get things done through sheer intention. And, um, and it's not supposed to be just to address your question. Um, Oscar, you said, is it, is it what the tone an angry wizard might make in order to break up a traffic jam? I'll say, no, it's not because tone 40 has absolutely nothing to do with anger. Anger is down at like 1.5 on the emotional tone scale. Right. Uh, and and tone forty is 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 way way up there. So it has nothing to do with being angry or upset or anything like that. And if I think maybe um, it, you know in cinema you might anybody who's seen the Matrix, Neo at the end of the very first Matrix attains a kind of tone forty intention, a sudden realization that all the world around him is really just something he's able to manipulate and control however he wants. And he just kind of twigs on this, and suddenly you can see that he can see the world differently. It all looks like lines of code. And, and you know, and this, these, these agents who were, you know, earlier, you know, superhuman speed and, and, and strength and ability are nothing to him now. He can, he, you know, he can just bat them away like, uh, like so much... Uh, you know, fluff and nonsense. It doesn't matter to him anymore. Um, that is an approximation of what Tone 40 would look like in an ultimate sense. Um, you just wouldn't even have any considerations that anything would stop you at all and nothing would. So um, I guess you kind of get the idea that this is pretty high level, you know, highfalutin kind of stuff. And it might sound ridiculous, but if you believe it's true then you would do almost anything to be able to achieve that level of ability and, and awareness. And that's what Scientologists are, are trying to do. And what I've also described here is kind of the ultimate state of OT. And what, and what the, the goal of being an OT is all about is it's attaining this kind of godlike power. Um, and, it's, and it's who you all have always been, according to L. Ron Hubbard. So... Uh, so that's what Scientologists are really in it for, and they get quite excited about this and the possibilities and, and potentialities of Tone 40 and, and how to get there and how to stay there, and that's what Scientology is really kind of centered all around. So I thought this would be an important question to answer, so there you go. Rob Kupitz, do Scientologists believe in evolution? If not, what do they say about various things like the pyramids, cave drawings, old living sites, Nazca lines, dinosaurs, etc.? Seems to me if people have these memories going back millions of years that they wouldn't believe in evolution. All right. Well, this is a little convoluted uh, in Scientology, and I have talked about this before, but let's go ahead and tackle it, uh, Rob, with your question, and that is... 
the, the L. Ron Hubbard in 1951, 52, in 1952, wrote a book called What to Audit, which later became History of Man. And some of you might know about this book because L. Ron Hubbard goes into quite interesting and detailed descriptions of life millions and billions of years ago here on Earth. And uh, he talks about the protoplasm line and the cellular line and the genetic line and how bodies evolved over time and thetans use those bodies in order to experience the physical universe. And he talks about Piltdown Man, which was actually a hoax from the 1950s that he um, sort of <laughs> unintentionally tried to give credibility to is by saying that that, we, that there were memories uh, from auditing that had been done of a caveman existence, a Neanderthal-like existence, an existence where the body had great big huge teeth and this kind of thing. So Hubbard acknowledged the reality of evolution um, as a process that occurred here on Earth as bodies evolved, as bodies, you know, became more complicated and and uh, and changed and, and uh, tuned into their environment more. And of course, as the environment changes, bodies change to adapt to that. And this is this is pretty settled science as far as how that process goes. Oh, there's tons and tons of details that are not settled science, though, and it makes it a really interesting question. Well, Hubbard seemed to be on board with that until there was a note, and I didn't look it up for this, but I'm just talking out my memory here. There was a note in the briefing course in, in the 1960s where Hubbard said that all of evolution was actually just a big implant, and it hadn't actually been a thing. And this is sort of a side note, not something a lot of Scientologists here know about. Most of them think evolution is a thing, and that, um, and that bodies evolved, and that Thetans have been using bodies to interact with the world. So that fits in, but in terms of your question about the pyramids and cave drawings and Nazca lines and dinosaurs— you know, most Scientologists don't particularly think too much about that kind of stuff. But when they do, they sort of imagine that the history of, of man on Earth has been a lot longer and a lot wilder than what we have in our history books. Hubbard makes it clear that we do not have dating technology very well settled here on Earth and that the, that the universe is a lot older than the Earth scientists think it is. So a lot more has happened on this planet than is acknowledged by historians and, and sociologists and anthropologists and this sort of thing. Um, but they don't really have a, a settled timeline of here's this and here's this and here's this. There are a few things, there are a very few things that, are, that, that Hubbard describes in detail that have happened in the past. And he talks about various kinds of implants, for example. But the ranges of time that he gives to when these implants happened was not, you know, this implant happened in 832 B.C. No, he says this kind of implant, like the Gorilla Goals implant, is the name of one of many, happened somewhere in a window of time between, you know, 8 billion and 30 billion years ago, right? So you've got this enormous stretch of time over which Hubbard is saying, you know, this kind of implant occurred. And then there's another section of time where other kinds of implants occurred. And these things crisscross and mix mash and, and you know, and, and the lifespan of the bodies that you've had has changed over time. And he talks about how back on Markab and the Markab Confederacy, bodies lived for incredibly long periods of time. We didn't have these 70, 80, 90-year-old temporals, you know, temporary affairs with, with, these, with these kind of bodies we have here on Earth, they had bodies that lasted hundreds or even thousands of years and um, until you killed them and then you just go get another body, right? And the universe used to be quite a different place. So here on Earth, Scientologists have all kinds of imaginary ideas about what happened when and where. Um, there's a lecture, for example, where Hubbard talks about how ancient Egypt was actually, a, you know, a, a float in 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 space opera stuff that that invader forces were coming down and having battles in the deserts around Egypt, 
and uh, that the pyramids were, you know, kind of uh, like a kind of a spaceport or adjacent to a spaceport or something. I mean, he makes the, he just throws these little bits and pieces. It's really just kind of kibble. It's a sort of chum for the, for the fish, you know, the Scientologist. Oh, give me more. And, uh, and so he would drop these little, these little lines, but really not elaborate too much on them. And so you're left with, you know, all kinds of fill-in-the-blank kind of answers you can make up as a Scientologist for what's the deal with the Nazca lines? Well, there's these, all these lines that are drawn out in the desert on the ground, and you're like, well, what's that about? Oh, well, clearly that was for spaceships that were landing back in the day, or, you know, you can come up with three or four other alternative explanations for it, all of them perfectly plausible. None of those explanations need to contradict anything Hubbard ever said. You can build on his his mythos or his mythology and and take it forward. And and lots and lots of Scientologists do. They think this stuff is fascinating and um, and they follow all that. So um so, you know, it's a bit of a potpourri. It's a little bit of a, you know, who knows what's going to be uh, there, right? It's, 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 it's all over the place. Uh, I, I don't know if I use that word right, potpourri, but it's, 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 a, it's a, 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 a disparate collection of crazy ideas. Okay, let's put it that way. Uh, in in Scientology around these things you've asked about, Rob. So it really almost matters which Scientologist you ask as to what kind of answers you're going to get on on these issues. So I don't know. I, I hope that helps a little bit. I know it's all clear as mud now, but that's that's kind of Scientology mythology. Alex C. I have some familiarity with customer relationship management systems, having worked for various banks over the years. I've heard Scientology uses a computer system called Central Addresso to manage electronic customer records. Is it a good system, or is it as disjointed and flawed as the rest of the church? Did it help or hinder your work? All right. So um, Central Addo, or the Central Files system, is something that has existed in paper form back in the day through card files and through folders uh, in file cabinets. This was the original database of customers that's, that every org was expected to keep, and they kept them in file cabinets, and this was just a filing system. This was the original concept of the central files, and every org was supposed to keep and does keep uh, file cabinets with the alphabetical um, name and address of every single person who has ever purchased anything from that organization. So here you are in Keokuk, and Keokuk has had, you know, has been around as an organization for 20 years. It has sold, I don't know, let's say it's sold uh, 1,000 books a year. So it's sold 20,000 books. So it's got 20,000 individual file folders with the name and address of every single person who ever bought one of those books. Let's just say that that happened, right? It might have also, that org also over those years didn't just sell those books, it also sold services, courses, auditing, training. And so those people who ever signed up for any of that have a file folder in the central files. And in that file folder is a copy of every invoice that they have ever had with the organization. So you have a treasury folder that has invoices for each week. And they're, they're sort of you know cross-indexed and sorted over in treasury but central files is in division two, the, the, the promotion and marketing and dissemination and sales division of Scientology. That's where CF is located. And uh, yeah, division two. And CF or central files is, um, is supposed to be this hard copy of everything the person's purchased, every letter that ever gets written to that person, a, a CC or a carbon copy of that letter goes in the folder or is supposed to. Um, surveys the person fills out, letters they write back to the organization. If they ever send any, any checks or any money or any letters into the org, those go into the central files. Obviously, the checks get cashed, uh, but a record of it goes into the central file. So the idea with the central file is you can pull out the folder, open it up, go through it, 
and kind of get an idea of who this person is and why they're connected to the organization and what they've done. And it's not a pre-clear folder. It's not their auditing. That's a different folder that's kept in a locked up place. And that doesn't have, you know, you can have a PC folder with all the auditing worksheets and confessionals and OW write-ups and all that. But that doesn't have their address. That doesn't have letters they wrote. That doesn't have services they've purchased. It just has a running record of their auditing. So the, so the pre-clear folder is a different thing. The central file folder is supposed to be, Hubbard said it was the body, is, is sort of the proxy body of the person. It's, it's who they are and, and their relationship with the organization. And so when you write letters to people every week, you're supposed to pull the central file folder and actually go through it and look at it and read it and get familiar with who this person is so you're not just writing random drivel to people. Now, this had, was through the 19, I think this was really started, started to be developed in the late 50s, early 60s. And by the 1970s, this was a thing. Every organization had a central file set up and had these file folders for every one of their customers. Come around the 1980s, and we start talking about Scientology computerizing some of its actions and some of its setup. And by the 2000s, they were starting to computerize the central file system. I mean, it is a database system. It lends itself immediately to, you know, going into uh, be a database type setup. And they were scanning with, with digital scanners. They started scanning all of the existing central files folders and putting them into this digital system. They still keep the hard copy files. It's a dual system now. The computer did not replace the central files. It just sort of was 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 picked up and, and created in order to be able for, in order for call centers to be built or created so that people could sit at a desk and not have to go pull files, but could just pull up the digital file, flip through the letters, flip through the invoices, see what this person has done. The computer program also had other information on the person, like their case level, how far up the bridge they'd gone, how much training they had done. Different kinds of information about them would also go into the system so that they could be called and sold more Scientology books and materials or uh, better even uh, come in and do services. So that system was something I messed around with a little bit when I was doing some call center work. And, um, and it was okay. I mean, as a call center program, it's fine. It even has a whole little pattern, a call script that would come up when you would be doing calls and stuff. So they integrated the central files, digital files, with a sort of sales system that walked you through a pattern and, and walked you through what to say to people and, and how to sell them stuff. Um, and that was based on exactly the kind of, you know, customer service software that you probably use uh, in writing me this question. Because Scientology looked at customer management and customer service software and, and, and putting their stuff together. And it was, like I said, it was okay. It was a, it was a decent system. It wasn't anything, you know, awesome or incredible, but it, it, it worked kind of. And... Um, the bigger problem is that with um, the central files over the years, they weren't really kept up very well. You know, the people who kept up central files were, all the, were always the people who could be spared, you know, and they didn't necessarily have great spelling skills, great administrative skills, great filing skills. Stuff gets misfiled all the time, both computer-wise and hard copy-wise, or, you know, these things were around for decades, these central files. So, uh, and still are. So they, you, you see a number of errors and problems in them. Duplicate files, bad addresses, bad status, bad information. Like, for example, when I went out to Twin Cities, I was doing, you know, door-to-door -door recovery. I was knocking on people's doors and I was saying, hi, I've got your name on a list. Well, that list came from Central Files, came from Central Addresso. And it had their name and their address and their phone numbers that we had on file. And it had their case level and their training level and what they had done. So I would use these lists and I would go knock on people's doors. And many, many times 
I'd knock on a door and say, hi, you're Joe Smith, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm Chris, and I'm here from the Church of Scientology, and I'm here. I understand you did, you know, a um, bunch of training. You're a class four auditor, and I'm here to talk to you about Scientology again, right? And this person would look at me and just—I I can't tell you how many times this happened. They'd just be like, dude, I bought a book at a swap meet like 30 years ago, and you people have never left me alone since. And that's it. That's all the person did. They bought a copy of Dianetics 30 years ago. But somehow in that 30 years, some bright bulb somewhere put in that guy's file that he was a trained auditor, that he, and which means he'd been in deeply in, and, and very uh, much involved in Scientology. And so the assumption was when I'm knocking on his door that I'm talking to a guy who really has read Keeping Scientology working, probably been to events, has audited people. This is a guy who's going to know what I'm talking about when I start talking about Scientology. And instead, I'm sitting there talking to some guy who bought a book, and we just will never let this guy alone. So that happened a lot, a lot, okay? In fact, I can give you some numbers. I think if I'm remembering this right, when I was out in Twin Cities, which is where I did the majority of that kind of work, um, I had a list of 900 names of Scientologists in that area, in the five-state area around Twin Cities. And <laughs> we called every single one of those names. And it turned out that easily at least a third of them were just total bullshit. Just total, never did Scientology, never wanted to do Scientology, didn't have anything to do with it, didn't really, you know, wasn't what it said on the list, like the book buyer who was, who was uh, labeled as an auditor. So, so these systems were sort of, you know, the computer system is okay, but the system, but the information base on which it is using, right, is, is awful. It's riddled with wrong information. And this is why they have been uh, working for decades now, um, we can say, um, trying to correct all this and get this all fixed. And, and this is why their skip tracing and all their address correction and all that stuff is, is working so overtime is they're literally fixing all those errors and crap from all those decades. So anyway, so that's the system. Hope you find that kind of interesting. And that's, uh, that's how Scientology reaches out and, and touches people now. <laughs> <laughs> Dylan Chatterton, from my understanding, the Church of Scientology has tax exemption in the United States, and removing it would either take the church down completely or at least knock it down a few notches. Does the church have tax exemption in any other country besides the U.S.? If so, where and when slash how was it granted? If tax exemption is such a huge deal, but it only applies to the United States, it begs the question, how important are the rest of the countries in the world as it relates to Scientology? What is the quote-unquote market share of Scientology in the U.S. by members slash gross income compared to other countries, and would it matter if they were a non-factor completely? All right, Dylan, thank you for this question. You're definitely asking me for information I don't have because I don't have any of Scientology statistical information at this point to do some kind of a gross income analysis by country. Um, that's just that, that they're just not transparent with that information at all. And I didn't have that level of, of granularity of knowledge of that sort of thing when I was a Scientologist. But, but I did look some stuff up and I do have a few things to say in answer to the question that I thought you might want to know. Um, so first off, um, the church definitely has the United States and tax exemption in the U.S. as its top, top, top priority. The United States is uh, the mother country, the home country of Scientology, always will be as far as I can tell. Um, and so it's very much an American religion, I guess you could say. And I looked up, there's actually a Wikipedia page that has the tax-exempt status and religious status of Scientology around the world. And so what I did is I summarized that data for you so I can answer this question. And here's, here is where Scientology is, um, well, it's kind of interesting when you break it down because there are four countries where Scientology is officially on the rolls as a cult or sect. And those countries are Argentina, Chile, France, and Israel. 
Uh, now, Scientology is officially recognized as a religion or has religious status in Australia, Costa Rica, Croatia, India, Italy, Kyrgyzstan, North Macedonia, Mexico, Nicaragua, the Philippines, Portugal, Slovenia, Spain, Sweden, Switzerland, Taiwan, and the United Kingdom, kind of. Uh, they can give marriages, they can do marriage ceremonies in the UK, for example, but they don't have tax exemption there. And all those countries I listed, where it's recognized as a religion, that doesn't necessarily mean that they have tax exemption. The only countries I could absolutely confirm where Scientology does have tax exemption are Australia, India, in some parts of India, and in the United States. So, um, okay, so then you asked about uh, income and stuff. Um, the, the hows and the wheres and the, and the when and all that of, of how those statuses exist is on the Wikipedia page. So I put the link to that in the show notes here for you today. Now, as far as um, how important is it to the rest of these countries, well, it is important. Scientology wants to be a fully recognized and validated religion with tax exemption in every country in the world. But as you can see, they have not had an easy time with that. And with good reason. Scientology is not a legit religion. It does not pass any public benefits test, and it should not have tax exemption. Um, and that's just, that's, I mean, my absolute final opinion on that matter. <laughs> uh, it's an abusive, high-control, authoritarian organization, and, it, and it's actively conning and deceiving its members. So, uh, so they should not have any tax exemption at all. But that doesn't change them from wanting it everywhere in the world, and they do pursue that. I think they pursue it mostly in the areas where they have the most influence. So the United States first, United Kingdom next. Um, and then Taiwan is quite big right now. Um, so those are the places, and of course, Australia, where they have tax exemption. Uh, and India is a place that they have wanted to expand into, but really, Scientology is tiny. There's really nothing going on in India of any real notice. As far as the market share of Scientology in the U.S. by members compared to other countries, I mean, by far, here's what I can say. I can't give you actual numbers, but what I can tell you is that by far, by far, by, by orders of magnitude, the income generated in the United States for Scientology far outweighs, uh, exceeds every other place in the world all put together. Because in the United States is where you have the two most concentrated and largest Scientology service facilities in the world, and that is in Los Angeles at Big Blue, the PAC base, and in Clearwater, Florida. And there are, because um, those are both places where you have a couple thousand Sea Org members and you have Scientologists flying in from all over the world to do their services there. And it just so happens, of course, that in Clearwater, that is where Scientology services cost the most money, too. Uh, services at, at Flag are charged two to three times more than they are at the city level churches. So you can just count on the fact you're going to be paying more when you go to flag. Uh, plus, there's accommodations. You have to stay in their hotels and all that kind of stuff. So those are real income drivers for Scientology is in Clearwater. And that's where that's, you know, sort of where everybody has to end up going. So that's why the income in um, in Scientology is always going to be heavily, heavily U.S. dependent. And of course, you know, with the tax exemption in the United States, and I guess to a lesser degree in Australia, they use that every year to incentivize people to give money to Scientology because by giving money, it's a charitable donation, which means you can write it off on your taxes. And this is what Scientologists do. And come, come December, you always see promotion to the Scientologists about, you know, hey, end of the year, time to get those donations in, get those tax exempt, you know, charitable donations in. So, so this is a definitely a big thing for, for, for Scientology. Steve Wood, I'm of the opinion that one of the benefits of OT8 is that you will be reborn in your next life with full knowledge and perception of who you were 
and everything you know regarding Scientology intact. Is this correct? If not, then what's the point if you come back and don't remember anything? I'm of the assumption that if you do come back with full perception, then presumably you don't need to go back into Scientology and rise up the bridge again, or do you? All right. Well, so far, Steve, according to Scientologists, including me when I was a Scientologist, you do need to go back because you get, you know, and you will go back. Uh, But as far as needing to do the entire bridge again, the idea is no, you wouldn't have to have to do everything again. But you might need to do some objectives. You might need to do some reorientation. You might need to get your head on straight. Who knows, right? Who knows what this, how this is really supposed to go because Hubbard never talked about it. (laughs) I mean, he talked about it in very general, vague ways, but he never said, here's the path. Here's what you do. You die, you do this, you do that, you get a body, you come back. You know, he never said any of that. At least not that I could I I knew of. I I never I never found any instructions for myself uh, in terms of how to conduct myself as a spiritual entity so that I made sure that I didn't forget everything and all of that. Hubbard only makes one reference that I that I absolutely remember uh, about how he said that he said in a lecture one time that most Scientologists have a real fear of kicking off, of dying. And not remembering anything, forgetting everything. And he said the solution to that is to get trained. Not just get audited, but get trained so that you know Scientology. You know the knowledge. You know all the material. You know how the reactive mind is. You know how, how Thetans operate. And you won't forget that stuff. That's really powerful, fundamental information. And hopefully you will not forget it. But you have to do both things. And most Scientologists are sort of in a little bit of a race to get up to OT, you know, this lifetime, try to get to OT8 and get some training so that they can, you know, not forget everything. Um, The idea is that, this is my understanding of it. Maybe other people had different understandings of it, but my idea the entire time I was in was that I needed to get to OT8 to be sure I wasn't going to forget. That up until I got to OT8, there was a chance I could be screwed. But if I could get there, the way Hubbard describes OT8, OT level 8 is that it is the first of the true OT levels where you're going to be getting positive gain again. In other words, all the steps up to OT8, OT7 and down, right, all those things, are negative gain. You're taking things away from you. You're stripping off trauma, stress, charge, you know, all that other crap, right? But OT8 is where you're a little baby Thetan now, and we're going to start rehabilitating your actual OT powers and abilities. And that's what the rest of the OT levels are supposed to do is start building you back up. We've taken everything away from you, all the trauma and the accumulated nonsense and bullshit and false information and and all the crap that's happened over all these billions and trillions of years. You get up through OT7, all of that's gone, and you're fresh and new. Now it's time to start building you back up again as a being. And that's what these that's what OT8 through OT15 are supposed to be about. <laughs> So the assumption is that with all that charge, all that trauma and stress gone, all the reasons you have to forget are gone. And you no longer have any of those body thetans or engrams causing you to forget. So, of course, you wouldn't. And you'd be, you know, kind of back in charge of yourself in this universe, and that's what OTA is supposed to represent. So, um, so that's that's what I can say about that. I hope that clarifies and, and answers your question, Steve. Ferdinand Reese, I was wondering if you have ever thought about talking about militant veganism online, or if you have heard of the documentary "What the Health" on Netflix. I asked because at one point I was converted, quote unquote, to veganism. Because vegan doctors such as Michael Greger, John McDougall, and T. Colin Campbell 
were preaching online the dangers of meat consumption and made many promises of weight loss and improved health by cutting out all animal products. I posted my story on Abby Sharp's video on what the health, but just to give an overview, I adopted a healthy vegan diet and within two months, my digestive health deteriorated. I lost muscle mass and I nearly passed out at the grocery store. My doctor told me that everyone is different and that while some people do well without animal protein, others cannot. I eventually regained my health after introducing meat back into my diet, but the recovery was very slow. I started watching your videos, which have helped me think critically about diet and health in general. I hadn't posted much in public about my brush with veganism until What the Health came out, and it angered me that the filmmakers were using graphic and grotesque imagery to illustrate their claims about the supposed dangers of meat consumption. Moreover, they claim that doctors profit from the ill health of a public that consumes meat. I suppose my question to you is, would the actions of the filmmakers and plant-based doctors amount to coercive persuasion and thought reform in your opinion? Furthermore, what advice would you give to anyone who is thinking of radically changing their diet? All right, Ferdinand, thank you very much for this question, and, um, and it is a good one. Uh, I am not a vegan. I'm not into veganism. I don't think that um, that that's particularly a very uh, well thought out or certainly not organically evolved diet. Uh, we are clearly omnivores and meat is a very important part of the human diet as far as I'm concerned. Whether you can or don't have to have meat is a choice you can make, and you're perfectly free to do so. But let's not go off the deep end and start talking about how bodies don't need meat. We've been eating meat forever, and our bodies very much crave meat. And I, for example, am a complete meatosaurus, and I couldn't imagine living the rest of my life without having any more meat. That's just ridiculous to me. Now, that all being said... I'm not any more in favor of animal cruelty than I than anybody else should be. I don't think that because I like meat and eat meat that, you know, animals should be tortured in order to give it to me. Uh, you know, slaughtering animals is an unnecessary is a necessary rather part of life and it's just part of the circle of of our ecology. And so I don't have I'm not in some kind of guilt space about that. Um, you know, the, 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 the food chain and the, and the whole circle of life and all that that's, that, that's just reality. And I don't deny that that reality exists. And I know that there are some people who do, and they get quite pissed about it because they are responding mostly from what I've seen. They are mostly not talking so much about diet and meat versus plants. They're talking about animal cruelty. And they don't like, and, and, they, and these imagery, the imagery that's used from PETA and from vegans to talk about animal cruelty is quite graphic and quite gross, and it's and it's not fun to look at. And I agree, we should we should reform how we're doing that. But um, the idea that the solution to the animal cruelty is to cut out all meat that, that that's just impractical at best and kind of stupid, at, at, you know, <laughs> really, because it's never going to happen. It's just never ever going to happen that we're going to cut meat out of our diet completely. Our bodies aren't built for it. And as your doctor said, everybody's kind of different. So some people might have certain tolerances or certain an ability to not have to get their protein from meat sources, but other people, they need that. And, uh, and that's just how that's going to go. And I know there's, you know, some people right now listening is probably gnashing their teeth and thinking, I don't know what the hell I'm talking about, but you know, I'm just talking about a very common sense approach to this. I'm not, I don't have to get into you know, uh, veganism now in order to, I don't have to subscribe to that in order to uh, talk intelligently about this in, in one fashion or another. So anyway, as far as thought reform, I think what you're seeing there is propaganda. And propaganda, there's a, there's a scale of influence um, or a spectrum of influence that I have uh, mentioned before. And you have like education and then you have propaganda and then you have thought reform. And uh, thought reform or, you know, brainwashing, as some people refer to it, is pretty hardcore. And you're not going to get brainwashed watching a video. Uh, you're not going to get, you know, thought reform involves a lot more effort than just showing people images or pictures or throwing words at them. There's a bit more to it than that. 
Um, you have to, for example, get the person to engage with you. It's a two-way street when you're at that level of of changing hearts and minds. But the beginning of that, the way to get there is propaganda. And that is what I see uh, what the health and other, you know, vegan propaganda is, is what it is. It's a, it's an effort to give information in a very controlled way so that only certain parts of, in, of the information, if, if you have a whole pie, we're only going to slice this bit and give it to you and tell you that's the whole pie. That's propaganda. It's deceptive by nature. Um, it is uh, almost always agenda-driven, and, and not, not even almost always. It's, it always is agenda-driven uh, because there is some ulterior motive behind it. That's why the curves, that's why the deception. If you gave the full picture, then people might have options and choices and ways to think about this that are different than the way you want them to. So propaganda is very focused information uh, transmission uh, in order to uh, get a person to think of particular way about this thing or this subject, okay? And that's what I see going on there. As far as advice I would give, I'd say, you know, about uh, anybody radically changing their diet, I have always said and will always say, get to see your doctor, get a medical exam, get a searching physical Find out what supplements uh, you might be low on or might need uh, through blood work and chemical, uh, you know, analysis of your body and stuff. You got to know before you go, you know, when you're going to make some radical shift to how you're feeding your body energy. And this is really, really important because it not just affects your gut line or your waistline, it, it affects your mental health too. You know, mental health is physical health. It's all the same thing. There isn't some other thing going on with your mental health. It's all part of your body and its process and its processes. So, um, if you are not giving your body enough energy that it can convert over and use easily, then you're actually going to start thinking worse. That's where I'm kind of trying to go with that. Is you have to have a your body is your your brain is using 30% of the energy your body's producing just to run itself as a usual sort of thing. If you want to engage in any real deep thinking or really get your brain going, you got to have energy in your body to feed that machine. It's a hungry machine. So, um, this is why I really really recommend that if you know before you go making some big change in your diet, um, you know what you're doing. And uh, you know the particulars of your body and uh, your own allergies, for example, right? You'd have to have, uh, are there any sort of um, viruses or situations with your body that maybe need to be looked into, you know, that kind of stuff? Anyway, I think you guys get the idea. And uh, with that, you'll have a much more sure avenue of how, what your diet should be and how you should uh, tailor it for, your, for yourself and your lifestyle. So that's my best dietary advice on that, and it's worth exactly how much you paid for it. <laughs> but that you asked, and so that's my opinion on that. And there you go. All right, so we did not do flash answers this week. I just answered uh, one extra question instead. Thank you very much for coming around and listening to me blabber on here. I really appreciate your viewership and support, and I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.